So last week in my message, I said one of my biggest regrets about becoming an adult was that no one ever told me to take a time out. That I just had to go and do nothing, go to the side, sit down, let everything go. I was too hyperactive, too overeager, too energized, too chargeful. Well, this Thursday, sort of file this under the category of be careful what you wish for. I got a call from a number I didn't recognize on my cell phone. The other voice, the other end of the line said, Ken, you need to take a time out right now. And I did. I sat down in my office in the midst of a very, very packed day and just sat and watched for 10 minutes a tree. Thank you for giving me that gift, that opportunity just right there, right then to be told, let it drop. The world does not rest on your shoulders, at least not for this five minute period. You can let it go. So thinking of being told to take a timeout, call to mind for me people who call timeouts. Why don't you show that slide here? As we close this message series, Reclaiming Your Amateur Status, these are our heroes today. You all know who this is, or these people are, right? Bill Russell, Red Auerbach. Now you see what Bill Russell is doing right here. What's he doing? He is jumping. You think that was a very, very natural thing for a basketball player to do. And Red Auerbach on the other side is coaching. Well, when Bill Russell was at University of San Francisco, he tells a story that he was the most gifted player on the team. He was particularly gifted, as those of you who follow basketball know, especially in the defensive side of the court. He did something very few other people could do at that time, which was just completely shut down an opponent's offense. But the coach, the head coach at the University of San Francisco said, that's not how we play defense. You're not supposed to jump. The way that we play defense is all the time we keep our feet on the floor. I want you to stay planted. Telling Bill Russell to keep his feet on the floor, not to block shots, is kind of like boarding an airplane in Philadelphia to fly to Chicago. And the pilot comes on the air and says, folks, it will be a 20-hour drive today to Chicago. Grounding your best talent, is what that coach at the University of San Francisco did. Perhaps he was threatened by Bill Russell because Bill Russell, in addition to being an absolutely incredible physical talent, was also incredibly cerebral and was doing something that this coach had never seen before. Perhaps part of it was racism as well, too, that he was threatened because Bill Russell was a different color. Let's go over to the other side. Red Auerbach, who became Bill Russell's coach, as many of you know, for the Celtics in the 1950s and the 1960s. Red Auerbach said, after watching Bill Russell play these words, you are the best player I've ever seen. That's obvious. I don't know what you're doing. So there's nothing that I can teach you. But I will observe what you do, and when I understand it, then I will incorporate what you do in to my system. What a difference between those two coaches. 
Red Auerbach not threatened by what he did not understand yet. Red Auerbach, who wanted to say, this new, this novel way of playing the game, which exceeds what I can coach, it will not threaten me. Now, Red Auerbach and Bill Russell together won 11 out of 13 championships. They took that opportunity to not be afraid of what was new, to not be afraid of what one of them did not understand. They were not afraid of seeing their game in a new way and a new fashion. One of the reasons I believe Red Auerbach was not threatened is because he had a very clear sense and a very clear purpose of what he was called to do, as did Bill Russell. They won those 11 championships out of 13 years, completely unprecedented in professional sports, because they had one goal. The goal was to win. The goal was to play as well as they could as a team. Now, Will Chamberlain got a lot of the scoring records. Bill Russell had a different idea. Both of them, in different ways, exhibited what we like to call beginner's mind. Beginner's mind is the openness to the deeper aspect of reality without being afraid of it. Beginner's mind is all about, as Red Auerbach exhibited, remaining teachable. What he recognizes is that the best coaches are themselves coachable. The best teachers are themselves teachable. The best professionals retain that attitude of remaining amateurs. As we bring to a close the message series today about reclaiming your amateur status, it is important to remember that, again, I believe the best professionals in whatever they do always retain that amateur status. Because remember, an amateur is not about being unpaid. It's not about being unskilled. It is about the root word of what amateur means. An amateur from the Latin for love. An amateur does what they do because they love it. That is the root source. And so this message series now as it ends cycles back to the beginning. It has been focused on that question for all of us. How do we love what we love and do we integrate it into our lives on a regular basis so that we stay connected to it? See, Red Auerbach could have and indeed the coach at University of San Francisco did, respond to this novel situation with an expert's mind. I'm the coach. I'm in charge. I know what's best. I will tell you to play the game my way. And through that, I will establish my authority. But Red Auerbach, working in tandem with Bill Russell, showed us a much better way. Maintaining beginner's mind, maintaining that openness to knowing that revelation, that this world will continue to teach us what excels our knowledge, and if we trust it, we will become who we can become. We will know that the beginner's mind is not about an absence of know-how. It's not about an absence of a way of knowing how to do things or get things done. It's not about helplessness, but it is about maintaining that ongoing familiarity with our primary motivations. A basketball coach, a basketball player, they're called to win the game and will follow any way they can to do that. Whatever the context in our lives, that's why I think Red Auerbach and Bill Russell can be heroes for us, to follow that moment to be able to achieve what it is that we have set out for ourselves and what it is that we love. This past week I heard a kind of funny articulation of this. There's a writer named Alison Gopnik. She teaches at UC Berkeley, 
and she was on the Colbert Report, and so it wasn't really quite a serious interview, but she's written a very serious book called The Philosophical Baby. It's really about observing how children learn to recognize that, in fact, they come into this life hardwired with so many gifts. And she said, one of the things that makes babies so smart is that they don't know very much to begin with. This is kind of like Socrates when he said, I'm the most ignorant man in Athens. And through that, proved that, in fact, he was the wisest. I thought of what Alison Gopnik said this week in connection with beginner's mind, in connection to something Jesus also said. He said at one point when people were asking, well, you know, what is heaven like? How do we experience that? How do we know that? And Jesus didn't really try and describe the indescribable. He actually pointed to a child who was seated somewhat near him. He said, unless you become like one of these little ones over here, you will never see, never experience what heaven is like. Now, I like this story for a lot of different reasons especially because it says to those of us who are adults that perhaps it is that expert's mind of wanting to know something, wanting to control something that gets us in trouble to begin with. But there's another reason I like this as well, too. Too often, and perhaps some of us have experienced this in our religious upbringing, a certain kind of very rigid Christian dogma teaches that we are originally fallen. We are originally sinful and depraved. But to me, this is the ultimate repudiation of that because Jesus, in whose name... The Christian religion was established. If we are inherently sinners and inherently not able to trust ourselves or the world, then why does he say, become like a child if you want to experience heaven? It doesn't make any sense. Because I think, in fact, original sin is a doctrine that is erroneous, as many of our Unitarian and Universalist forebearers did as well. If we are not inherently sinful, if we are not inherently broken, then we can learn to trust. We can develop our faculties of letting go of the need to control. We can let go of that expert's mind, and we can open in any moment, in any time, and remain teachable. Last week, I made reference to another basketball player, Michael Jordan. In his Hall of Fame speech, I don't know if any of you have seen it, saw it last week since you were here, or perhaps just saw it in your lives. This should have been Michael Jordan's crowning achievement in his career. He was the greatest of all time. And yet in this moment when he was being celebrated or should have been celebrated by the very sport that provided him the opportunity to express his greatness, for 17 minutes, he decided to settle scores. He decided to call out all the people who he felt had slighted him from coaches to teammates to opponents to even the game itself all the way back to high school. He showed that sometimes the greatest demons we know are the angels that we couldn't let go of. So at first, when you watch that video, it's Michael Jordan appearing very, very petty. It's almost as if this is, if you could say to him, Michael, this is your shining moment. <laughs> this is the moment when you are being celebrated by all the people that you have inspired and yet he was completely isolated up there completely alone in his desire to want to say i'm going to go out on my terms in some ways what he wanted was the last word the last word i am so much in control of this even after i retired that i will get the last word and you will see the world through my eyes because just as i controlled the ball in the court right now i'm going to hog the ball in my acceptance speech he wanted to have that last word. And by the way, if 
you know, maybe you've ever been in an argument, just maybe with someone close to you, and you say, I want to get in the last word. Well, there's always one way to make sure you get in the last word. Just talk to yourself. Just talk to yourself. You will get in the last word. But if you want to be connected to someone else, be connected in community, we will never get the last word. We can leave the conversation, but trust me, we all know this. The words continue on after we have left the stage. Michael Jordan wanted to control his legacy. And he ended up tainting it. Because he wanted to be bigger than the game. He wanted to be bigger than his coaches. He wanted to be bigger than his opponents. He wanted to be bigger than the game itself. There's sadness in this because at the end of his career, his only love was for himself. Not for what had given the occasion to make him great. There was no release from the limits of his own ego. It's sad that at the end, he could not remain an amateur. To truly remain an amateur means that we can experience gratitude. That we can find the people, the places, the opportunities to prove who we are and to remain connected to something bigger than ourselves. Spirituality ought always to hold before us the opportunity to ask that question, how are we remaining amateurs? How are we, how are you loving what you love and are you loving it well? This is love as a calling that does not end. And interestingly enough, Nietzsche, who's not often thought of as a religious thinker, Friedrich Nietzsche said, someone who has a clear why can learn to live with any how. Kind of like Red Auerbach. His why was to win the game. And so he would trust that he would learn the how eventually. This is the kind of calling, if we will remain true amateurs, that will release us from being at the center of the universe, which is the most lonely place to be. It is the most isolated place to be. We will learn, if we are not at the center of the universe and remain amateurs, that we can set aside our desire to control things, to control outcomes, to control things, people, places around us, and instead focus our talents and our gifts on mastering what we are good at so we can share it. This allows us to let go of that desire for perfection, instead to express excellence, to share rather than to show off, to making the people and the places where we live better, not through self-sacrifice, but, but through communion. Some of you know the book, From Good to Great, about organizations, businesses that really thrive, go from a certain level of performance up to another level of performance. I think of Red Auerbach when I think of what Jim Collins in that book calls level five leadership. It is a very unique combination of absolute personal humility and complete professional commitment. That is what Red Auerbach showed by remaining teachable. Some of you might know, and if you have kids, and actually even if you don't have kids, I would really encourage you to take yourself up to Bucks County at some point in the next few weeks to see a retrospective of the life of Jim Henson, especially for those of you who are Muppets fans or grew up in the 70s like I did. There's a wonderful quote from Jim Henson there. Jim Henson, who was gifted, who was expert in some ways at crafting this absolutely amazing alternative reality called The Muppet Show in Sesame Street. But he admitted and said, I don't know where ideas come from. For me, it's just a matter of figuring out how to receive the ideas that are waiting to be heard.
Jim Henson knew that genius does not author itself. He reminds us that in humility also comes from the same word in Latin, has to be grounded. Grounded, down to earth, connected, close by. If we stay connected, if we remain teachable, we will remember that trust can develop in the same way whatever your particular excellence, whatever your particular gifts or genius, we will remember like Jim Henson himself, that we don't own the ideas. They merely come to us, and our greatest charge is to hold them as good stewards so that they can be shared with the world beyond us. There's a Buddhist teacher I like a lot. Her name is Charlotte Beck, and she makes sense of a phrase that I don't think I ever really got until she talked about it. It's a phrase that comes from the Western tradition. It says, not my will, but thy will be done. Now, it's kind of an interesting phrase for a Buddhist to use because we often don't think of Buddhists talking about thy in terms of God up there in the heavens. But she said she really made sense of this after watching a video of Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, who she said in this video, was so clear in her calling, so clear in remaining an amateur, so clear in remaining connected to what she loved, that it showed up in everything that she did, so that in every moment of her call, it's not as if, you know, sometimes that word calling is, I had a calling, past tense, and that has made all the difference. That's not the way a calling works. It is day after day after day that we reveal our fidelity to that call. But Charlotte Beck, she said, it was so clear in this video that Mother Teresa was not just focusing on her wishes, her desires, her. She wasn't placing herself at the center. She was trusting that each moment life would give her an opportunity to express the depth of her call. And through this, she exhibited a kind of grace and spiritual maturity, interested in serving rather than consuming, interested in being present rather than being isolated. Some of you know these words from St. Francis, the prayer of St. Francis. Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. This call to be ourselves also takes us beyond ourselves. And it eliminates, or at the very least is an antidote, to what I think is the greatest spiritual illness of our time. Which is loneliness. The sense of being isolated. The sense of being set apart. I love what Van Gogh said. He said, we are not here for ourselves alone. We are not here for ourselves alone. I probably saw the most moving expression of this years ago when I was a hospital chaplain. There was a young woman on one of the medical wards. She was, I think, probably in her late 30s or early 40s. And while she was not dying of cancer, this would be the outcome at some point. She had had been admitted to the hospital because the chemo that she had on had made her somewhat sick, it compromised her immune system. And I saw her probably once a day for almost three weeks in a row. We'd go in, she was not from a Unitarian Universalist faith tradition, but we still forged a connection. We'd go in, we'd pray together. 
More than anyone else, when I think of that phrase, remaining teachable, I think of her. Because her days were not easy. She was not getting a lot of support from her immediate family. She had two kids. But every time at the end of our prayer, we'd say amen, and tell her that I would see her tomorrow, she would say, I'm learning something from this. Now, she wasn't always clear what that something was. She'd always say, I am learning something from this. What I saw in those weeks that she was in the hospital, sometimes I'd walk in and she'd be holding one of her children in her lap. And she'd be talking very intently. Sometimes they'd be laughing. Sometimes they'd be crying. And I could see that in that moment... It was not about her will, but that experience of thy will. She did not want to be sick. She did not want to be in a situation in which she was not getting the full support from some members of her family that she would have wanted to. But as those weeks went by, what I saw in her was that she invited her friends in. Day after day after day, more people were there with her. Because she had that attitude. There is something in this that I will learn. I think what she learned more than anything else was that she did not have to be alone. She did not have to be isolated in this moment and in these times of pain. The last time I saw her, it was as I was cycling off the unit to go spend more time in the emergency room minister to the people there and the last thing she said to me she said I don't know when it will be but she said whenever it is I'm ready to go I will face what I need to face up until the very end and through the most extreme of circumstances she was going to remain teachable she was going to remain open to what life had to share with her even if it was incredibly difficult. And because of that, in the last few days that I saw her, I remember her with a smile on her face more than anything else. Because she no longer feared. She no longer had to say, I can control where this is going, because she couldn't. Beyond that pride of ownership, or beyond even the fear of death, where the fullest expression of spiritual and personal maturity lies. There is this, the sense of being at home in the universe. That where there is the choice to be isolated, we can connect. Where there is the choice to shut ourselves down or shut ourselves off, we can choose to love. Our great sage Emerson said this, that we are all invited to have an original relationship with the universe. What he was saying is not thy will, or not my will, but thy will. What he was saying is, we can become beginners again, even towards our end. I think of that young woman in the hospital, and I think about the kind of legacies all of us will leave, and are leaving right now even in the midst of our lives. 
couple years ago, I went to a museum, actually probably about six or seven years ago, down in Florida. And every little bit of that museum had someone's name stenciled on it. The Ida Newberg, literally, bathroom. The so-and-so wing. Now, I can understand that instinct to want to put our names on something, perhaps thinking that we will be remembered. But I had no idea who any of those people were. And perhaps what they were trying to do was cheat death. Eventually, none of us can win that. Eventually, no matter how famous our name, no matter how well-known we are, the name will just be a name. But however, if we remain teachable, if we remember that right here, right now, in this moment, we can maintain and begin again with beginner's mind, we will achieve a different kind of immortality, whatever comes next or is transcendent. If we want to maintain the remains of our name, well, that's a losing battle. But there's something better. If you want to retain the remains of your meaning, just keep handing it off. Keep remembering that in this moment right here, right now, each of us has that opportunity, like Red Auerbach did, when we are confronted with the new, the novel, the fearful, that what makes you angry, whatever it is for you that makes you want to shut down and isolate, whatever it is for any of us, and instead ask, what is it that I need to learn right here and right now? How is it that all of us can remain teachable? And through this, remain amateurs, remain good teammates, remain good spouses, remain good children, remain good parents, whatever it is for you. If we want to ensure the immortality of our meaning, hand it off. Become a beginner again. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O divine spark, creative force in this universe that indwells in us as surely as it dwells anywhere. May we take the invitation of this moment to remain or reclaim as amateurs. May we know that in this moment, in this very day, no matter how rote it may feel, no matter how fearful it may be, that we are always given that invitation. Sometimes it shouts, sometimes it whispers. Connect. Be here now. May we have with our gifts, even with those we don't know yet, may we have just enough faith, just enough trust to say yes to the invitation that this moment provides, to follow it where it needs to take us. And in our affirmation, what we know is at the very core of who we are, is also being said yes to as well. 
May we live out this wisdom. And may we be blessed by it. Amen.